Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Grace and peace, my sisters and brothers. I wanted to bring you the sermon today from a a unique spot. And it's because there's this this passage of scripture that has stayed lodged in my mind and, and, and has set, set up camp in my heart for the last couple of weeks. It's a passage that I actually read to you um, as a part of the sermon a couple of weeks back, but it was kind of in passing. It's one of those passages that helped give support to the greater point of the sermon a couple of weeks back. You do know, right, that for every 30 minutes of sermon that you hear typically from week to week, there's at least an hour and a half of other content that, that is kind of lying on the cutting room floor material that just needed to wait for another time. And this one, this one hasn't left my, I guess, my, my consciousness. It's, it's a passage from the book of Psalms. It has to do with a river and a tree and a harp. A harp that is intended to be played, a harp that's meant to make music, but in this particular passage, is silent. It's Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. We wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our, our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down. They said, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall they be who pay you back for what you've done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is what we call a psalm of lament. Of lament. So lament means to to call out, to cry out to God with, with an unfiltered rage about something that has gone wrong. It means to grieve, to anguish, to, to express with absolutely no edit button how you feel before God. 
the Bible is filled with laments. At almost every turn, there is an example of some person or some group of persons attempting to express to the divine their experience with suffering and heartache and pain. In fact, we know that about one third of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. I mean, teeming with language of disruption and despair and disappointment and disillusionment. I mean, one third of the book of worship, the book of worship that Jesus had access to, his worship hymnal was one third about lamenting. And there are stories in the Bible about individuals who rend their garments, who, who throw ash up into the air, who cry out before God. In fact, there's even, there's even a whole book of the Bible called the Book of Lamentations. It's a series of poems, of songs that are intended to express on behalf of broken Israel their experience of having been devastated in defeat. And why? Because pain and suffering and heartache and anguish is a part of the human journey. It's it's not a part that we are intended to hide or to to muffle or, or muzzle. We are intended to cry out when something goes wrong. In fact, lament comes from the same place love comes, from the depths of the heart. And if we, if we choose to not express lament when it's time for lament, then we're shutting off a part of the same heart that has the capacity for love. Even in the New Testament, there are examples of lament. In the book of Romans, in chapter 8, even the Spirit groans inwardly with with groans to laments too deep for words when we have no words to express it the spirit itself laments on our behalf in that same chapter it says the creation groans for the longing of its complete redemption (laughs) all of the created order the entire ordered universe at times laments because it knows it's not finished. And if we needed any more example at all, or any more justification for, for lament, all we have to do is look to the example of our Lord. Jesus lamented. He, when he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, it was a lament. When he stood on the brow of the hill at Jerusalem and called out, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace, city of peace, if only you knew what really made for peace. It was a lament. And as if those two examples weren't enough, there he is. He's, he's hanging on the cross, bleeding, suffering, dying on our behalf. And with his very life ebbing away from him, he calls out from one of the most well-known psalms of lament in the Psalter, Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, when we, when we deny our God-given capacity to cry out. We're denying something that is true and real, and it's really a risk 
for us to not know how to lament. The church has lost the art of the lament. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know where it happened or where it happens, but the fact is that the church, somewhere along the way, we, we sanitized our spirituality. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm, we sanitized our spirituality. Uh, we, somewhere along the way when we became broken, we, we thought it would somehow be inappropriate to tell God how it feels to be broken. Somewhere along the way, we, we convinced ourselves that, that somehow if we were truly honest and we questioned God or doubted God, or if we shook our fist against the cosmos and said, why and how long, oh Lord, will you keep away from us? If, if, if we honestly were to be frank with God, we taught ourselves that it would somehow be too much, that we would have crossed a line, been inappropriate, stepped over some boundary as if it would offend God. Can God have God's feelings hurt? I mean, God, the God that you and I worship is a God who is far more stable than that. When we, when we refuse to be honest with how we feel about liminal seasons or loss or grief, it's, it's dangerous. It comes with a risk. Because if we don't become honest, what happens is we, we, we live in denial about a reality of the human journey. We live in denial. And when we stuff it down, it's worse than just kind of cramming it down and not talking about it. Because all that energy of pain and regret and grief and anger is, goes somewhere. And you know where it typically, typically goes? Whenever we, whenever we deny it, we, we usually project it somewhere else. That's right. We, if we deny and can't find voice to articulate to our maker what it feels like to be made, then we, we stuff it down and we project it upon other people. And suddenly then that person is the cause for all my trouble. And those people are the reason the world is falling apart. It's that political thought. It's that theological orientation. It's the way those people live their lives. And all the while we're taking all that lament and we're projecting it on other people because we won't own it. We won't simply stand before the maker and, and own it. Yeah. There's this... There's this story in the Bible about a man named uh, Job. And, and Job, well, according to God's own opinion about Job, Job is blameless. The story of Job begins with God himself saying, this man is upright, righteous, blameless before me. And yet through a series of events, he loses everything that he has. It's not his fault. He's done nothing wrong, but he loses everything that he has. At first, he loses his property and then his livestock, and then he loses all of his children. And when that wasn't enough, he loses his health, and he's, his body is racked with this disease, this debilitating disease where he is literally wasting away, and we find him sitting on this ash heap, scraping the sores of his deteriorating body. And for, for a while, He's quiet and he, 
He kind of takes it, stuffs it down. And typically, if you, if you hear people talking about Job, it's typically in a kind of casual way. They'll say, oh, this person had the, the patience of Job, right? <laughs> well, the trouble is they are quoting the Job of the first two chapters of that book. The book of Job has 42 chapters, and for almost two of them, he's quiet. I mean, his wife says, why don't you just curse God and, and die? And he says, no, listen, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it sounds so pious. It sounds so righteous. But then in chapter three, he opens his mouth. And, and for 26 chapters straight, he rails against God. He shakes his fist at the heavens and he, he charges God with crimes against humanity. He challenges him. In fact, he even, he subpoenas God and says, if you would just come with me to court, we put my sin in one side of the scales and we put my, my punishment in another side and you'll see that my punishment way outweighs anything I've done to deserve what has happened to me. And for 26 chapters, he rails against God, shakes his fist against God. And his friends are like, you can't talk that way. You, you, you can't speak to the Almighty that way. Surely you've done something wrong. Surely you deserve this. And he keeps saying, I've done nothing wrong. He has to answer to me, come and face me like a man. And at the end of this book, God speaks. God shows Job some things that Job hadn't seen before. And, and Job closes his mouth. And, and God says something interesting. God turns to the friends of Job who were so spiritual and so righteous that they kept their mouths shut. They never lamented like Job. And God says to them, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And by the end of that book, there's this amazing line. Job says, I used to hear about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. When you find the courage to lament, to say it out loud, to let God know what God already knows, when you're able to say where it is that you find yourself, something happens and you see God like you've never seen him before. Now, by the way, you need to know that next week we start a brand new series called Job. And we're going to walk with Job for about four or five weeks and learn from him what to do when our struggle is so deep that we can't keep our mouth shut. So see, the Bible itself is teeming with examples. It's like an invitation to you and me to stop pretending and, and to be candid with the God who simply wants to be known and wants to know you. You see, part of what we do is we, we hide our pain and we neglect our pain and we negate it because we think somehow it will it will offend God or damage our relationship. But the trouble is, Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the whole point of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus was not so that we can somehow deny our pain or ignore human suffering or tragedy or sorrow, but it's so that all of those human sufferings can be transformed. 
your suffering and your trouble and your pain cannot be transformed until you see it and own it and hold it up before the God who knows what to do with it. Which brings us back to this psalm, the one about a river and a tree and a harp. Because you know the context of this lament is in the, in the context of, of a people who had lost everything. You remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about exile. And there in Jerusalem was the center of the universe, the, this gleaming temple that, that reminded the world around it that everything was in order. If God was in the temple and the priests were doing their duty and the people were faithful to come, well, they, would, they would hear and they would see and they would smell even through the sacrifices that the ordered universe works. It's all predictable, it's all reliable. They had set their life up and the sound of the harp was the reminder and the symbol of everything that was right and pure and good and holy and just and now it's gone. And Babylon had torn it down. Babylon had destroyed the temple, but not just a building of bricks and mortars. They had destroyed the symbolic universe itself. And now there was nothing for which to sing or dance. And so we hear these words coming to us again, words dripping with the language of lament by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, sitting down is a posture of resignation. Do you know what it's like to be so weary with your wound that you can't stand anymore? There by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, I love the willows. In some translations, it says the, on the poplars there. But I love willows because when you and I, especially in the South, think about willows, we think about the weeping willow. There on the weeping willow, we hung up our harps, the harps that are meant to be played and heard, the harps that symbolize the power of God's presence and, and, and confidence in the world, we hung it up. For how can we sing the Lord's song? There our captors asked us for songs. The captors and tormentors asked us for mirth saying, hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. Do you know? I think you do. You know, on the one hand, you know what it's like to not be able to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land because remote, remote worship doesn't work the way in-person worship does, right? I mean, it's, it's nice to watch worship in your jammies and drink your coffee. Believe me, I've gotten used to that myself, but we all know that hanging our harp on the willow means in some way we, we miss the thing that was so powerful in gathering together. But this verse is about more than that. When they refused to sing the Lord's song in Babylon, what they were in essence saying is we refuse to be fake. Lament is an absolute refusal to be inauthentic. To not say one thing and mean another. To not pretend as if everything is fine, I'm gonna put on a happy face and just kinda fake it till I make it. Lament says, no, I'm not gonna sing if there's no song in my heart. And if there is a song in my heart, I'm not gonna keep it quiet. Lament means to refuse to be inauthentic. 
So how could I forget you, O Jerusalem? Let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. My right hand, which is meant to strum the harp. My right hand, which is meant to be raised in worship before God, may it wither because I've got nothing to play anymore. May my tongue, which is meant to be singing, which is meant to proclaim good news, my tongue, which is meant to shout the wonders of God in worship, may it cling to my mouth, to the roof of my mouth, because I have nothing to sing about anymore. And then the verse continues. The lament goes deeper and more disturbing. Remember, Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to the foundations. This poet literally is remembering the echo of those painful words as they watch the temple fall. Sometimes when we are wounded deeply enough, it's hard to erase what we have seen. It's hard to mute the voices that repeat, isn't it? That's lament. And then maybe the most disturbing verse of the entire psalm. Oh, daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back. What you have done to us, happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Like, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? Talking about taking the children of our enemies and dashing them against the rock. I know, I know. I mean, it's, it's so disturbing that I would never want to be heard saying that. You would never want to be heard praying that. But it's in the Bible because it's honest. And God would rather hear your honest call than your silence. It's interesting to me because it's not as if God then granted what they called for in their lament. Because sometimes when you're lamenting, you call for things that even on your best day you would never call for. But God knows that. It's like in, well, it's, it's a little bit like the teachings of Jesus. He said, look, ask and seek and knock. Because the father knows how to give good gifts to his children. If, if your child asks for one thing, the father wouldn't give another. The, the father knows how to give good gifts. And in a prayer of lament, he knows that when you call for something that would not be in the best interest of you or even your enemies, he knows how to respond like a good father, but he listens. So you can't transform your pain until you confess it. It can't be transformed, your pain, your anger, your anguish. It can't be transformed unless you own it and hold it up before the Lord. And my question to you is, what harp hangs on the willow for you? What harp hangs on the willow for you? What is the harp in your life that you have hung up because you've given up and you've said, you know what? I am done. My wound is so deep, I can't anymore. I just, I can't and I'm giving up. I won't sing. I won't talk about it. I won't address it. I'm going to deny that it even exists. What is it? Is it a relationship? Is it your spiritual journey with Christ? Is it that you've given up on some call because every time you have the opportunity, you hit a brick wall and they're not hiring or you're overqualified or underqualified and you can't seem to get to the place where you know that God is calling you to live and be free 
And maybe you've decided I'm gonna hang it up on the willow because I am done. What's interesting to me about Psalm 137 is this. It is blanked with hope. Yeah. So Psalm 137 is this psalm of lament, but guess what Psalm 136 is? And Psalm 138. The psalm right before the psalm of lament and the psalm right after the psalm of lament are psalms of praise. Psalm 136 is like, hey, you know, the Lord's steadfast goodness remains forever and ever. And it, and it, it recounts all the glories of what God did for the people long ago. And it's punctuated by that phrase, the Lord's steadfast goodness endures forever, 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 forever. And then the psalm after 137, it, it's, it's a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. So is it? Is it compelling that Psalm 137 is stuck in the middle between the already of what God did long ago and the not yet of the thanksgiving and praise and celebration that's coming. And in the liminal space of the book of Psalms, there is the Psalm of lament because the liminal season calls for the language of lament. I don't know how you're hearing this. And maybe you're hearing this and you're like, amen, yes, that's exactly where I've been. Thanks for saying it. Or maybe you're hearing it and for the first time, you're at a place where you're like, I've been holding this pain for so long and holding my ambiguities about God, maybe even my doubts and questions and fears about actually approaching the Almighty because I was afraid if I opened my mouth, it would be too much and I wouldn't stop. What if right now God is inviting you to simply open and speak? If so, maybe it sounds something like this, God, I know that I am not perfect, but this world has been imperfect to me. Maybe you experienced uh, a sin that resulted in pain for yourself or your family. Maybe you made a choice and you feel like you, you blew it, and now you're living with the devastation of the impact of that choice. Maybe you say, God, I, I don't know what to do other than to cry out to you. I confess that this is where I am. It's not where I wanna be, but this is where I am. And, and if, you, if you hear me, then I yield my life to the possibility that you can transform my pain. I, I think about Christ upon the cross and if it's true that his suffering was to demonstrate for me that all of my sin and all of my pain and woundedness can be transformed, then here I am, Lord. I receive you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to know that that may be the starting point of the greatest journey of your life, but you're not meant to journey alone. I want you to tell somebody about it. I want you to tell me, email me to talk to me about how you've been praying through this liminal season and what God may be attempting to show you so that I can pray along with you. But wherever it is that you go from here, from the space where you are, May Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go before you on dark days when the path is unsure and, and you want to
feel like retreating to, to encourage you one step forward at a time. Maybe, maybe what you need is Christ to go beside you to your right, to your left, abiding closer than even a brother or a sister. May Christ go above you. On the dark days when, when the clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of your day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your heart beats in rhythm with his. Thank you.